millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone. This is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. My show covers the later Roman Empire, And I won't bore you with comparisons between a republic which became an empire and the United States. I'm sure you've heard it all before. But I will say that in addition to the main historical narrative, I've tried my hand at creating a few American biography-style episodes, picking out interesting smaller Byzantine lives to explore. If you're curious, then come check out the show. But for now, it's back to American Biography. This episode of American Biography is brought to you by the generous support of our sustaining patrons, as well as listener Phil. Not only did Phil make a generous donation, but he also sent me a note to let me know that to his ears, as a native Virginian, I've been saying some things incorrectly for the better part of a year. Apparently, the county in Virginia I've been calling Henrico is really pronounced Henrico, and the venerable George Wythe is really the venerable George Wythe. Separately, listener John also wrote to let me know that I've been mispronouncing some names, including the legendary Elizabethan age jurist and legal scholar, who I've referred to as Edward Coke, but whose name is really Edward Cook. Thanks for the feedback, everybody. Well, welcome back to American Biography, a member of the Agora Podcast Network. This is episode 19, Things Fall Apart. Last time, we talked about John Marshall's moderate leadership in the House of Representatives and the roundabout way he became Secretary of State. This episode, we're going to talk about John's relatively brief tenure in the Adams administration and the suicide of the Federalist Party. It should be a good time. Marshall took up his new post in June of 1800, just as the federal government was in the process of moving from Philadelphia to its new home, in Washington, D.C. The president arrived on June 2nd. Marshall and several other cabinet members straggled in several days later. The new capital was really a city in name only. There were relatively few people and fewer structures. Republican leader Albert Gallatin, in a letter to his wife, described the new capital this way. The whole of the federal city consists of seven or eight boarding houses, one tailor, 
one shoemaker, one printer, a washing woman, a grocery shop, a pamphlets and stationery shop, a small dry goods shop, and an oyster house. Adams, Marshall, and the new Secretary of War, Sam Dexter, were all checked in together at one of those few operating hotels and conferred with one another for a grand total of a week before the president left the malarial swamp of a capital for the summer, when its muddy roads and marshy nature made it a breeding ground for mosquitoes and sickness. So as Adams beat a path back to Massachusetts, John Marshall, with a full week of experience under his belt, was essentially left as acting president. At this point, you're probably expecting me to launch into an exposition about how profound and significant John Marshall's tenure at the top of the State Department was, but I can't. This isn't to say that Marshall was a bad Secretary of State, because he wasn't. It's not to say that nothing happened during his time in the Cabinet, because things certainly did. It's just that, in his time at his post, he pretty much dealt, more or less, with the same issues as his predecessors, in more or less the same ways, using, more or less, the same tools. We shouldn't assume he was a hapless placeholder, because had the election of 1800 turned out differently, he almost certainly would have stayed on for Adam's second term, and continued to be one of the president's most trusted and valued ministers. But given the brevity of his tenure and the circumstances he was dealt, there was neither the time for or the call to rise above being a perfectly competent, proactive, and effective agent of government. The modern position of Secretary of State is significantly diminished from what it had been historically in the United States. Today its focus is on foreign relations and diplomacy, but in the late 18th and for much of the 19th centuries, the Secretary of State was, in Gene Smith's words, responsible for all the activities of the federal government except those involving the Treasury, the military, and the post office, functions that today are handled by the Patent Office, the Bureau of the Census, the Government Printing Office, the Department of the Interior, and the Department of Justice. So, not only did Marshall have international responsibilities, but had significant domestic ones as well. As alluded to, these included the publishing and disseminating of government documents, issuing patents and copyrights, conducting the constitutionally mandated census, and recording federal land grants. But that wasn't all. John Marshall was in charge of the Mint, which you would have thought would have been part of the Treasury, but yeah, no, it wasn't. And because the Attorney General was at this stage really just the President's legal advisor, the State Department was charged with the administration of justice. This is likely the reason why this post was, for such a long time, considered to be the stepping stone to the presidency. And to help with this massive workload and these vast responsibilities, John was given a clerk and seven other assistants. Still, I believe that a review of what Marshall dealt with in his less than a year at State is profitable, since, obviously, it's not like he was just sitting around twiddling his thumbs. His most immediate concern was supervising the construction of Washington, D.C., which was forever behind schedule, and he was constantly exhorting those responsible to speed up the work, 
particularly on the Capitol and the President's Mansion, as Congress and the First Family were expected to take up residence in the fall of 1800. Internationally, Marshall was confronted with trying to maintain the delicate balancing act the United States had been performing as it tried to navigate between the continuing struggles of Great Britain and France. And it's to Marshall's credit that his tenure at state would in fact see relative improvements in American relations with both of these great powers. On one hand, when John was confirmed, the quasi-war with France was still a lingering conflict, and the ultimate success of President Adams's second American peace delegation was anybody's guess. However, France had once more undergone a regime change, and since November of 1799, First Consul Napoleon Bonaparte's government had made consistent conciliatory overtures to the United States. Bonapartist newspapers in France even praised Adams's selection of Marshall as Secretary of State, conveniently emphasizing John's refusal to give in to the Directory's attempts at extortion during the XYZ affair, which served to remind the French people of the Directory's corruption. Because time and distance required it, foreign diplomats were given broad guidelines and usually equally broad authority to make deals. We don't have to look back farther than the XYZ episodes we did not that long ago to get an idea of how distant Adams and Marshall would have been from the day-to-day -day operations of the Second American Peace Delegation. But I also think it's critical not to undercut Marshall's influence here, because from nearly the outset, Adams and Marshall had possessed very similar views of how to engage the French. And as time went on, Marshall was increasingly influential in developing and articulating the Adams policy. And so his influence would certainly have been felt at the peace talks. These talks eventually bore fruit in September of 1800. And Adams's policy was vindicated when the Treaty of Mort de Fontaine was signed, ending the Quasi-War and restoring peace and amity between the two countries. Marshall also superintended mildly improving relations with Great Britain. It had actually been a bumpy road since the 1796 Jay Treaty. The first issue between Britain and the United States had preceded Marshall and would last long after he left the State Department. This was the British seizure of American ships and goods headed for Europe, as well as the impressment of American sailors. Marshall forcefully reiterated the rights of neutrals under international law, and rattled the saber, warning Britain that its actions might lead to war. While his efforts were eloquent and poignant, impressment and confiscation would continue, and eventually precipitate the War of 1812, the ending of which pretty neatly coincided with the end of the Napoleonic Wars, whose material and manpower needs had primarily triggered Britain's practices in the first place. The second issue was, ironically, something Marshall had been involved with for years, and that was American avoidance of paying back pre-revolutionary debts owed to British creditors. Back in episode 13, we talked at length about how Marshall was one of the preeminent legal minds when it came to mudding up the waters with circuitous legal questions in order to try and help Virginians get out of paying back these debts. Marshall's delaying tactics proved somewhat successful as, eventually, the Jay Treaty, 
established a joint arbitration commission to sort out the debt issue, and that commission had opened its doors in 1797. Unfortunately, by 1799, those doors were shutting again, as the Americans walked away from the table following unreconcilable procedural disagreements between the two sides. By the summer of 1800, as Marshall was settling into his role in the State Department, he received word from the American minister to Britain, Rufus King, informing him that the British were suggesting the way to resolve this issue might be a lump sum payment, and then the British themselves would be responsible for wading through the claims and doling out the recompense. Marshall's one worry with this possible solution was the idea of the United States giving a large cash payment to a combatant nation in a conflict America was officially neutral in. It reminded him of when Talleyrand suggested that the Americans could forward the French government alone disguised as debt repayment. President Adams, however, felt that this was an entirely different situation, as these debts were privately contracted between American citizens and British subjects, and the president, overruling his Secretary of State, approved of it, and he and Marshall then also agreed that a million pounds sterling should be a sufficient number to seal the deal. This was communicated to Rufus King, and Rufus King must have been one hell of a negotiator because the deal that he eventually struck with Great Britain settled the matter for only 600,000 sterling. Good job, Rufus. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Marshall's most trying role while at the State Department was undoubtedly trying to get John Adams re-elected while keeping the Federalist Party from self-immolating, two things he was ultimately unsuccessful with. In previous episodes, we've already noted the tensions between the wings of the Federalist Party. Now, much of this inter-party strife finds its source in the antipathy between the nominal head of the party, the sitting president, John Adams, and the party's intellectual founder, Alexander Hamilton. It's hard to put a finger on the root cause of their mutual dislike, but over the years, it had steadily grown, fed by the jealousy and suspicion each man held the other in, which in turn fueled their escalating disdain and mistrust of one another. The most recent cause one can find for their feud certainly took place in 1798, when the United States Congress decided to create an army just in case the French invaded. Hamilton, who had been out of government for several years by then, but harbored what increasingly begins to look like delusions of martial glory, ramped up pressure on John Adams to give him the number two spot of inspector general in the new army. Adams resisted this. He believed that the more senior Henry Knox should have that honor. However, Hamilton was able to get his way by refusing to serve under Knox and getting Washington who'd been offered overall command of the new force, to threaten to refuse to serve should Hamilton not be his number two. Now, when I describe Hamilton's martial ambitions as delusional, I'm not simply resorting to baseless hyperbole. Historian John Furling writes, In his powerful new position, Hamilton plotted moves against beleaguered Spain, France's hard-pressed ally. He dispatched military supplies to the Florida border, confiding to trusted officers that the measures he took looks to offensive action. He added, If we are to engage in war, our game will be to attack where we can. France is not to be considered as separate from her ally. Tempting objects will be within our grasp. He not only invade allies in Congress to resolve that a state of war with France would exist if negotiations had not succeeded by November 1799, but also urged legislation sanctioning a preemptive strike for taking possession of the Floridas and Louisiana before France took those areas from its Spanish ally. Hamilton declared that he had long considered the acquisition of those countries as essential to the permanency of the Union. Nor was that all. He looked far beyond the borderlands. He advised the High Federalists on the need to seize this moment of Europe's woes and detach South America from Spain. Hamilton was mesmerized with the notion of an Anglo-American campaign to liberate Venezuela from Spanish rule. But military adventuring wasn't the worst of it. Following the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions, which were an aggressive statement of states' rights that we'll have much more to say about in future episodes, Hamilton saw a domestic mission for the new army, and he was prepared to use it to put down any Republican-led insurrections he imagined might rear their heads. When news of Hamilton's ravings eventually reached Adams, the president simply said, The man is stark mad. Having not forgotten nor forgiven the manner in which he was forced to accept Hamilton as Inspector General, when Washington died in 1799, Adams got his first bit of revenge by not filling the vacancy atop the new army. Now, as we mentioned last episode, 
Marshall had barely been able to save the army from the scrap pile while he was in Congress, and it wouldn't survive much longer after he left, as by this point, the army was beginning to look increasingly unnecessary and more like the drain on the government's resources than its critics had long believed it. With Hamilton's great benefactor gone, Adams began purging the Hamiltonians from his administration, which was the action that ultimately brought Marshall into the cabinet. With his plans now in disarray, Hamilton seems to have taken leave of his senses and actively began to seek to supplant Adams as his party's nominee in the upcoming election. He took up his pen and began writing to other high Federalists, criticizing the president, and he ultimately succeeded in a scheme in which many Federalists pledged to support Adams and another candidate, our old friend Charles Coatsworth Pickney of South Carolina, equally. Hamilton seems to have been confident then in his ability to later move events so as to place Pickney in the president's mansion and thereby get his payback against Adams. In his bitterness, Hamilton even seems to have made peace with the idea that derailing Adams was worth the cost of a Jefferson presidency. Eventually, his anti-Adams writings, which had only ever been meant for the eyes of influential party leaders, found their way into the Republican newspapers, and the press had a field day with them. The Federalists were imploding. As one rank-and-file party member lamented, We have no rallying point, and no mortal can divine where and when we shall again collect our strength. Shadows, clouds, and darkness rest on our future prospects. Even the usually optimistic Marshall noted, I should feel confident all would be right if there did not appear to be a current setting against us of which the force is incalculable. There is a tide in the affairs of nations, of parties, and of individuals. I feel that of real Americanism is on the ebb. Marshall knew that he couldn't hold the two wings of the party together anymore, and he seems to have been aware that in this election cycle, the energy was with Jefferson and his surrogates, who were stating a compelling case, as Beveridge writes. Jefferson combined their battle cries of the last two years into one mighty appeal. Simple, affirmative, popular. Peace, economy, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, trial by jury, no standing armies, were the issues he announced, together with the supreme issue of all states' rights. Upon this latter doctrine, Jefferson planted all the Republican guns and directed their fire on centralization, which, said he, would monarchize our government and make it the most corrupt on earth, with increased stock-jobbing, speculating, plundering, office-holding, and office-hunting. The electoral map changed irrevocably for 1800 when control of the state legislature of New York was won by the Republicans, thanks to the astute politicking of Aaron Burr, who succeeded in turning the laboring classes away from the Federalist Party. This all but assured the state's crucial electors, whom that legislature would choose, and on whom Adams had relied heavily in 1796, would now go to Jefferson. Burr would be handsomely rewarded for his services, given the informal but clearly discernible junior spot on the Republican ticket. Adams and Pickney were soundly defeated. This was far from the end of the drama, however. As was the convention of the time, each elector voted for two names, and all they needed to do was remember to be sure that one person 
voted for Jefferson, abstained on his second vote. However, one guy forgot to abstain, which means that in the end, Jefferson and Burr were tied. Now, it was widely expected that the younger Burr would graciously defer to Jefferson, because, of course, everybody knew that when the electors voted, they were thinking Jefferson, President, Burr, Vice President. However, those who expected this obviously didn't know Burr. Aaron Burr was a charmer who could sell a ketchup popsicle to a lady in white gloves. He was also an accomplished attorney, a senator from New York, a Revolutionary War veteran, and as smart as a whip. He knew that he hadn't been Jefferson's first choice as vice president, and all things considered, he wasn't guaranteed to ever get this close to the presidency again. So rather than bow out, Burr stayed right in the contest. Now, in this scenario, the Constitution called for the dispute to go to the House of Representatives, who would then vote on who should be the next president. The hiccup here is that though the incoming Congress would have a Republican majority, the sitting lame duck Federalist Congress would get to make this decision, and boy, oh boy, was Jefferson not very popular among this bunch. Federalist congressmen began asking themselves, how about Burr? On paper, he had a fine resume. He may be a Republican, but he wasn't a doctrinaire like Jefferson. No, this was a practical politician, the kind of guy you can make a deal with, maybe even the kind of guy who'd remember who put him where he was and could be counted on to return that kindness. Yes, Burr was looking all right to the anybody-but-Jefferson crowd. There was one person, though, that believed absolutely that Burr would be a disaster as president, and this was Burr's acquaintance and sometimes rival, Alexander Hamilton. As vociferously as he'd attacked Adams, Hamilton now attacked Burr, firing off letters at a furious pace. He even wrote directly to Secretary Marshall. Hamilton's letter is lost, but Marshall's reply makes clear what the gist of it was, and also stands as one of the clearest indicators of what John thought about his cousin Tom. To Mr. Jefferson, whose political character is better known than that of Mr. Burr, I have felt almost insuperable objections. His foreign prejudices seem to me totally to unfit him for the chief magistracy of a nation, which cannot indulge those prejudices without sustaining deep and permanent injury. In addition to this solid and immovable objection, Mr. Jefferson appears to me to be a man who will embody himself with the House of Representatives. By weakening the office of president, he will increase his personal power. He will diminish his responsibility, sap the fundamental principles of the government, and become the leader of that party which is about to constitute the majority of the legislature. Your representation of Mr. Burr, with whom I am totally unacquainted, shows that from him still greater danger than even Mr. Jefferson may be apprehended. Such a man as you describe is more to be feared and may do more immediate, if not greater, mischief. Believing that you know him well and are impartial, my preference would certainly not be for him, but I can take no part in this business. I cannot bring myself to aid Mr. Jefferson. Perhaps respect for myself should, in my present situation, deter me from using any influence, if indeed I possessed any, in support of either gentleman. 
Marshall's position was clear. He just couldn't help Hamilton if it involved helping make Jefferson president. The best he could do, all he would do, was to simply stay out of it. In the House, balloting was done state by state. Therefore, out of the 16 states then in the Union, the winner would need to have an absolute majority of at least nine states. Federalists threw their support to Burr, and in five days of balloting, from February 11, 1801 to February 17, 1801, 35 votes were taken, and each time, Jefferson received eight votes, Burr received six votes, and two states issued blank ballots. Hamilton's harangues, or perhaps some unknown assurances by Jefferson, eventually softened Federalist resistance, and on the 36th ballot, Jefferson received 10 votes and was elected the third president of the United States. These were tough times for Federalists. They had lost the legislature. They had lost the presidency. However, in the heat of the election season, the incumbent Chief Justice, Oliver Ellsworth had submitted his resignation due to poor health. Adams had first offered the position to John Jay, who had been Chief Justice of the United States and had resigned in 1795 after being elected Governor of New York. Jay eventually rejected Adams's offer, but the President wasn't informed of that rejection until January 20, 1801, and there was precious little time left. In his autobiographical sketch, Marshall describes the situation like this. On the resignation of Chief Justice Ellsworth, I recommended Judge Patterson. The President himself mentioned Mr. Jay, and he was nominated to the Senate. When I waited on the President with Mr. Jay's letter declining the appointment, he said thoughtfully, Who shall I nominate now? I replied that I could not tell, as I supposed that his objection to Judge Patterson remained. He said in a decided tone, I shall not nominate him. After moments of hesitation, he said, I believe I must nominate you. I had never before heard myself named for the office and had not even thought about it. I was pleased as well as surprised and bowed in silence. Next day, I was nominated. It was, I believe, when taken up, unanimously approved. I was unfeigningly gratified at the appointment and have had much reason to be so. Marshall may have been surprised by the nomination, but as David McCullough writes in his biography of John Adams, he really shouldn't have been. It is probable that Adams knew exactly whom he would choose before Marshall ever entered the room. In many ways, the nomination was inevitable. Few men had so impressed Adams as Marshall, with his good sense and ability. Nor had anyone shown greater loyalty. He was Adams' kind of Federalist, and who, at 45, in the full vigor of middle age, as Adams said, could be expected to serve on the court for years to come. In its far-reaching importance to the country, Adams's appointment of Marshall was second only to his nomination of George Washington to command the Continental Army 25 years before. Possibly the greatest Chief Justice in history, Marshall would serve on the court for another 34 years. Okay, everybody, that's where we're going to stop today. Before I go, I did just want to mention a few fun things. American Biography has agreed to take part in the Endangered Words Project, by which I'm going to try to use, whenever I can, naturally, 50 words from the Dictionary of American Regional English 
that were used by previous generations but are now facing extinction. So that should be interesting. And I'd like to quickly give a shout-out to the Agora Podcaster of the Month for June, Chris Stewart, who's the History of China podcast, recently, at the time of this recording anyway, released his 100th episode, and I would highly recommend you all go check out this amazing podcast about the Middle Kingdom. Finally, I would like to thank Robin Pearson, the host of The History of Byzantium, for his wonderful introduction to my show. Robin started out with the express purpose of picking up where Mike Duncan ended the history of Rome with the fall of the West. The results have been an incredibly dynamic and comprehensive podcast about this surprisingly resilient vestige of the ancient Roman Empire that I really couldn't recommend more. Coincidentally, Robin is also a stand-up guy. About a year and a half ago, when I was waffling about whether or not I was going to start this podcast, I reached out to him as someone I respected, and to my surprise, he responded. And it was only after his advice and encouragement that I really was sure that this was something I thought I could do. So, many thanks, Robin. And again, everyone, go check out the History of Byzantium. All right, everyone. Remember, you can check us out on Facebook or on Twitter or at the website, AmericanBiography.webs.com. And if you're interested in getting your hands on any of the bonus episodes I'm working on, you can sign up to be a sustaining patron at www.patreon.com forward slash ambio, one word, A-M-B-I-O. And if you have any comments, questions, or concerns, or pronunciation corrections, please email me at AmericanBiographyPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and I hope to talk to you again soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.